0: Assalamualaikum alaikum wa rahmatullahi Welcome to another episode of the Islam Through the Ages podcast. We're joined today by Dr. Fozia Bora. Who is an associate professor of Islamic history at the University of Leeds? She has a master's in classical and medieval Islamic history and a doctorate in medieval Islamic history, in particular the Mamluk period. She is a recurring guest, and we hope to be a long-term recurring guest for the Islam Through the Ages podcast. She has lectured at various institutes in the UK in the past, including uh, Markfield Institute of Higher Education and now University of Leeds, where she is currently based. Um, Assalamualaikum, Dr. Bora. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Wa rahmatullah. It's a pleasure to see you again,
0: um, So today's topic is a very interesting one, and it's kind of a, it's almost an introductory but a bird's eye view of everything we're going to be talking about in the Islam through the Ages uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, we called it the periodization um, topic. So in terms of periodization, what uh, what would you explain about the periodization or um, the timeline, etc. of of Islamic history, where do you define it from and to, and why is it particularly important?
1: So periodization is something we do to make sense of history. Um, Given that there's a kind of a a long sweep of time that we kind of keep in consideration when we think about the Islamic past, we need some way to chop time up and to uh, kind of carve it up in ways that make it manageable and periodization is something that's become well has been for some time a topic of discussion because how you carve up time um makes a difference to what meaning you derive from it and for muslims uh, at least for you know our dominant mainstream sunni model you have a very distinctive kind of uh profile you have the life of the prophet peace be upon him and then you have the Khilafa, the beginnings of the Khilafa, or the, the kind of um, uh, the successes of the Prophet, if you like. And the conventional historiography tells us that the first four successes of the Prophet were the rightly guided ones in the Sunni model. Of course, the, the Shi'i perspectives will be quite different from this, but going for now with the Sunni model, uh, what became the Sunni model, because it wasn't called the Sunni model at the time, um, that model, uh, reads into the past the uh, idea that after the Prophet peace be upon him passed away, the rule of the Muslim community went to Abu Bakr, uh, thence to Amr, thence to Uthman, and thence to Ali. Uh, now the handovers were not straightforward, the handovers took different shapes and forms, uh, and there were different levels of um, consensus or lack of consensus. With, with some of these handovers of power. Nevertheless, the kind of projection that we see uh, from you know later periods onto that early history was that these four caliphs were the rightly guided caliphs. And then you have also a number of stories around the life of the prophet peace be upon him, his seerah and lives of the companions. And that forms the backbone of our understanding of early Islamic history. Um, the, the life of the uh, Meccan community before Islam, uh, and then the life of the Prophet himself, peace be upon him, um, his interactions with people around him, his marriage to Khadija, and um, the revelations and so forth. I mean, many, many of your listeners will be completely familiar with, with the outlines of that story. But then, what happens after the, this rightly guided caliphate? Then you have a series of dynasties. And conventionally, we've looked back on the Islamic past through the prism of these dynasties, the Umayyad period, the Abbasid period. And then when the Abbasid state became, you know, uh, very large and um, in some ways unmanageable, uh, then we had the successor states. So really that's a very, very uh, well understood kind of proposition that that's how you understand Islamic history, but that periodization, um, so chopping history up into periods of time uh, can be questioned because it does Uh, make our understanding of the past quite rigid. It only allows us to ask certain kinds of questions, Uh, and as a result of that, many Muslims are uh, left with a history which is told in quite bold outlines, but the deeper questions, how did society function, what were the experiences of ordinary people who were not powerful, what were the experiences of enslaved people or women, you know, those questions are often left out, and we now see, you know, uh, historical scholarship uh, delving into these topics but we as Muslims are not often empowered to understand those things very well partly because of our very rigid periodization which some would say is very eurocentric anyway the idea of periodization so a number of intersecting issues there how we chop up the past the conventional view what does that give us what does it not give us and what we can do differently going forwards so
0: in terms of so periodization is essentially how you uh, divide it up and how you chop up history into it now I appreciate this isn't very clean but also what impact does it have on the contextualization of history so are we looking at it as these are the periods of Islamic history and then these are the periods of for example modern western history and how we compare them mm-hmm. to each other um, yeah. and, and how valuable is it to be able to place Islamic history in context of
1: mm-hmm.
0: everything that was happening around it
1: I think that's very very important to be able to to, to speak kind of coherently about the interactions of early Muslim communities with communities outside them. And it's further complicated by the fact that the earliest Muslim historians in in the earliest sources use different kinds of ways of reckoning time. They would use multiple calendars, you know, the Zoroastrian calendar, they would use biblical calendars, they would use um, references to um, kings and monarchs and dynasties, you know, before Islam or uh, you know, kind of in dynasties next to the Islamic world um, sort of in some ways rival dynasties and they would use those calendars in their ways of time keeping freely and to inter- intersperse them with the history calendar uh, You see that even quite late on in the medieval period in, in the Persian historiography of Rashid ad-Din in the Mongol, you know M- Mongol period so the 1200s and onwards so the the ways in which Muslims reckon time has always varied um, the question about um what does that periodization bring us? It brings us some clarity. So it allows us to look at the past uh, without, it being a, uh, without it being a complete mass of time. So we have some sense that a period ended and another period began. Um, this I think has really shaped our consciousness of the past. So we have quite strong views or strongly held beliefs around the fact that the death of Sayyidina Ali uh, was a turning point. After that came kingship caliphate al-Rashidun ended, then we had monarchy. And that was, you know, kind of a, a more worldly form of leadership. So I think in terms of contextualization, we do need to be able to compare with what's happening outside the Islamic world. Uh, we also need to put Islamic periodization, the Hijri calendar, the idea of Islamic centuries, the idea of Islamic dynasties um, into perspective by looking at what kinds of periodizations have been used elsewhere both then and now Uh, so it's both a tool and a restriction and that's what i think i hope we can delve into a bit more today how do we um take value from this very conventional and normative periodization but how do we also look beyond it to see where its limitations are and how can we then ask other kinds of questions of, of the islamic past
0: so i think one thing that i've always seen in terms of periodization is comparing islam's golden age with the european medieval dark ages and how accurate is that and how well firstly where did where did that kind of discussion originate um but also how has that been valuable slash not so valuable and oversimplifying in terms of how it leads to us having um conversations around islamic history
1: right so i think the idea that there was a, a period of immense kind of cultural learning efflorescence and growth in the islamic world uh, particularly you know um, as the islamic empire spread and muslims came into contact with people of cultures with other written traditions and other kind of cultural traditions i think that's a, that's a very kind of solidly based um understanding of, of, of islamic history so the golden age although it's a kind of a metaphor and you could say it's a cliche it's still grounded in reality because we have a plethora of evidence that the Muslims of the time, or Arab scholars of the time, they weren't all necessarily Muslim, but they were gathering um, knowledge, understanding information from a range of different traditions in different languages, and they were extremely open to absorbing that material, incorporating and passing it on. I mean, the Greek tradition of philosophy and thought comes to the West via Arab thinkers and translators. So there's no doubt that the Islamic world was both uh, an, uh, an arena where knowledge was absorbed and digested and reconstructed, but also it was a conduit for knowledge travelling from, from East to West. The idea of the Dark Ages in the West is a bit of a, uh, a cliché which has been really questioned um, in recent decades, as uh, kind of historians look more deeply into what was happening in the West in, in, in the so-called medieval period. And there was a lot more going on. Uh, But it's certainly true to say that during the period of the Crusades and in the period of the Golden Era before that, there was a lot of movement of ideas and inference from East to West. Of course, that was reversed with the period of colonialism and Western imperialism, particularly European imperialism in the the, um, Middle East. Uh, And then you saw technology moving from the West to the East. You know, I'm speaking very broadly here, Uh, but certainly in the period of the Abbasids, uh, to some extent the Umayyads, but mainly the Abbasids, um, there was a massive uh, period of, of, of real cultural learning, which permeated society, particularly in the cities, I and mean, it's not so much a rural phenomenon, but it certainly is an urban phenomenon. So there is a lot of truth to that idea.
0: Okay, I, th- I think we'll, we'll probably go into a breakdown of perhaps each of the periods and how they were done. Um, but I think one thing that that comes to this is in terms of the periodization it seems that a lot of the periodization was done in terms of this was the Rashidun Caliphate and then came the Umayyads and then came the Abbasids etc how useful has that been in terms of how it translated to events on the ground um mm-hmm. is it fair to say that this was a period and it was completely unique and then there was another one and another one and how is that hindered slash helped um the development of how Muslims see their history?
1: Mm-hmm. Those are really good questions. On the one hand, it's been, you know, you have to carve up history in some way. So it's been useful to have a handle on the past in that way. The limitations of this conceptualization of the past or this periodization include the fact that history is much messier. So, how you experienced events on the ground really does not equate well to the idea of there being even something called the Abbasid Revolution of 750. So the Abbasid Revolution of 750 is seen as immensely pivotal. Which is when
0: the Abbasids took over from the Umayyads.
1: Um, Yeah, on the basis of a of a movement which was both promising a return to uh, sort of strict Sunni rule from the family of the Prophet and it was messianic. In other words, the idea that the end of the world was was on the horizon. And Muslims had to get their act in order, and the Abbasids were the ones, with, with the support of uh, the Alids were the ones to bring rest and restore balance to, to the to the to the world. The um, problematics of of the this kind of periodization include the fact that when you think about history, Islamic history as being Rashidun, the kind of the pinnacle of uh, kind of Islamic norms and exemplary behaviour, and then the Umayyads, which is you know seen widely as a period of moral corruption and the Abbasids come to turn, restore uh, Islamic values. And then you have the period after the Abbasids, when the Abbasids begin to decline and their um, certainly their grip on their empire begins to falter. Then you have the rise of successive states. Now the whole problem with this model is that it's essentially a decline paradigm. And it's a decline because you have the high Islamic period uh, which then gives rise to other kinds of dynastic eras, and then a breakdown of Islamic power per se, Um, I mean, you can question whether it was Islamic power, you know, there are many questions to be asked about this model, I'm not going into all of those, I'm just giving you the outline, Um, and then the decline model states that with the breakup of of the the Abbasid um, empire, successive states came into being, whether that's the Saljuqs, who were Sunni, the Fatimids, who were Ismaili Shi'i, um, and then uh, a period of, uh, you know, a number of dynasties came along, beyond them, the early modern dynasties, the Ottomans, the Safavids, and so on, um, and then the European imperial project came and disrupted the growth of, 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 of Islamic civilization, civilization in inverted commerce, and Europeans then were able to kind of bring their own um, Stamp of of civilization to the Islamic world and of course their imperial project meant uh, They kind of took the resources of the Islamic world freely and they carved up the Middle East in their own image The image of their own self-interest. So that whole decline paradigm I think it, it served the interests of Western imperialism very very well It's not so useful for Muslims as Muslims thinking about the past Um, And I say that
0: you're saying the the Western paradigm is that Islam went up and up and then it just went down and The Europeans kind of revitalized the populations and made life better for them
1: in some sense Yes, I mean, that's not the whole story, but that's one part of an important part of the story Uh, The idea of there being a a strong decline now, when does the decline begin? That's a a questionable uh, Idea because you can you could say that the, the decline begins with the end of the Rashidun period at least in the Sunni model you could say the decline period begins when the Abbasids begin to lose their grip because they were the overseers of this 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 cultural golden age. So where you consider the decline to begin is debatable. But the idea of there being a decline um, has been really, I think, um, not served the interests of Muslims well. Uh, if we think of every age as having its challenges, every era, every every Muslim life being a journey, uh, a kind of a, a moral and ethical. Uh, struggle in some ways, then the idea of these broad brush strokes of there being a decline, I find to be uh, quite problematic. You know, there is so much more nuance to the story than this. And for an ordinary person, whether from the middle classes or from, you know, the lower classes or living in cities or living in the countryside, the idea of there being huge upheavals when one dynasty is de- de- replaced by another i think highly questionable um the the important pivotal moments may have nothing to do with high politics and so that's another consideration
0: and i think that's that's a very I i think that's a point that gets missed a lot is that what affected people's lives because when we look at history it's almost a set of dates of oh this happened and then this happened and then that happened and well it's almost like there was a coup and it changed it changed the societal model completely and everyone's life changed whereas As as you're saying, quite potentially, there was, for for a vast majority of the population, they paid their taxes to one guy, now they pay it to another guy. Everything else, broadly speaking, remains the same.
1: Right, Um, right. Yeah, yeah. There there could be changes. I mean, some some particular governments would have particular kinds of policies that would affect, for example, religious minorities, um, or they might have a more, let's say, um, inclusive attitude to people of different denominational backgrounds, whether Muslim or not Muslim or Muslim. Um, so there could certainly be changes that came with a change of government or a change of ruler or a change of, a kind of regime, if you like. Um, at the same time, that is one strand of the story. Another strand of the story is what's happening in environmental terms, you know, what about the, the, the diseases that affected people, the climate, climactic change, um, things like environmental change, that was also a huge factor that's not often considered. The plague in Egypt wiped out a third of the population in the medieval period. You know, that was m- immensely um, instrumental in shaping people's lives, and it was immensely damaging. But we don't see uh, enough engagement with those environmental factors. We're seeing, that, I mean, that's changing a little bit now, as environmental humanities become more center stage, not just within academia, but also in, in kind of popular understanding that it's not always politics that drives the quality of your life, or the decisions that you make. Um, so, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, how ordinary people experienced life doesn't always map onto these uh, political pivots. There are often many other pivots that would be more instrumental in shaping how people lived and, and worked and interacted with each other.
0: And in fact, that would be wider than just Islamic, actually the same things um you know for example a plague that affects egypt will also go to any country that it trades with so that's where we see kind of an interlink between um any history that you're reading western history or uh, whether that be western european history eastern european history or any other
1: absolutely absolutely and we have a number of um uh, Muslim and Arab and Middle Eastern scholars, academics who've really questioned the periodization, uh, you know, and including non Muslim scholars have done the same, uh, with quite interesting results. For example, uh, Abdullah Al arwi a Moroccan thinker and historian, he's talked about the fact that um, historiography and the, the, the kind of patterning of the past through periodization. Uh, it doesn't serve anyone's purposes to be too rigid about it. And really, it's a cultural project. So, how you chop up the past of a cultural it kind of uh, uh, has a cultural flavor to it and it's culturally determined. Uh, and other scholars have said the same thing, Aziz al Azmi and others, and they've proposed different ways of doing it. So, Aziz al Azmi suggests that you could use a, a framework like late, late antiquity. So, in other words, the period that was influenced by. The Greeks and Hellenism and so on uh, and other cultures around and see what uh, Islam brought to that world and kind of judge it by that framework. Um, I mean that would be you know one way of doing it and another way is to look at the history of, of materiality of of um, material culture and uh, of the environment and where does Islamic history fit into that and in in, in, in those perspectives Islamic history is part of a larger Timeline. But on the other hand, you have Khalid Blankenship who says, but you could also say, well, I'm going to make Muslim history, the Quranic worldview of monotheism, my framework. And within that, you'll see material history, environmental history, social history uh, as, as examinable topics. There are, there are different ways of doing it. But, a range of scholars have really questioned whether the the conventional periodization has served the interests both of, you know, people of the Middle East, particularly Muslims, and other minorities as well, uh, and what other alternatives could we use? Uh, So it's an ongoing debate. There hasn't as yet been a systematic critique of this idea of early uh, Islamic history, medieval, and then modern, which we all kind of live and work with. Um, but it's it's highly highly questionable, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I think you mentioned that you have a problem with just the world mediev- word medieval itself.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very Eurocentric word. All of these terminologies are, are fairly Eurocentric. They've been um, embedded, embedded in our school system, embedded in popular culture and embedded in academia to some extent. Uh, academia is where you see it questioned more and more now, but that hasn't really trickled through to the school system, at least in the UK. You still see... Um, modules and programs which talk about medieval history versus um, uh, classical history versus you know modern history, early modern, postmodern, etc. That terminology is still very very strong and persists.
0: Okay. Um, now I think going back to how did Islamic historians do this? So I'm going to come to some modern historians as well um, and how the view of history has changed even by muslim historians and how they view it but mm-hmm. i think one of the earliest historians we have is al-tabari yeah. and then moving on to for example ibn khaldun how did how did that evolution occur and how did muslim historians of the past mm-hmm. view history and how did they categorize it or how did they present it even
1: right so tabari is incredibly interested in uh, time and how to conceptualize time how to reckon with it, understand it, how to represent it, because of course his job as a, as a historian and as a writer is to represent it to his reading public, and um, he has a, a, a discussion about time in which he is he's really reflexive, you know, he thinks about the ideas he's inherited, alternative systems, reckoning time, uh, the kind of the, the Muslim view based on the Qur'an and so on, and I think he paves the way, quite a lot of um, self-reflexive and self-critical uh, delving into how you chop up time. Um, and I think that's instrumental for uh, later historians who are not just drawn somebody and historians of his generation, but also take from him that quality of self reflexivity. Uh, and so by the time of Ibn Khaldun, but also earlier, Rashid ad-Din, I mentioned in the Persian tradition. Um, he. When he presents even the life of the prophet peace be upon him he will make reference to other calendars so he'll say this event occurred in the year of the elephant but also this is the same uh year which is in the zoroastrian calendar or some other calendar uh, so they invoke these other frameworks uh, which shows that they were in a multicultural environment but b they're not wedded to one conceptualization when it comes to they understand there are different ways to conceptualise time and, and to chop it up, which I think is, you know, remarkably pluralistic of them, if, if one can say that, you know, and um, it shows that they uh, were very conscious that these were choices to be made. Uh, and we can see that those choices are culturally driven. Um, they you know, every, every time uh, timeline or periodisation that you kind of put into your work, or that you teach to your students, or that you uh, work with, has a particular purpose to it. You know, whether that's uh, showing the importance of Muslim history, how Muslims lived, early Muslims, the exemplary Muslims that I talked about, or whether it's to do with acknowledging the kingship of a particular dynasty, or it's kind of its legitimacy, whether it's to do with um, a more practical value of chopping time into pieces that are manageable. So that's where you see often, historians work with centuries and the centuries model is very, very popular. It cuts across all of the others and is is kind of ubiquitous. You see it everywhere. So virtually all historians will think and talk in terms of centuries. And they will also think and think and write in terms of years annals. Um, So that's very, very common. But um, the wider periodization can vary a lot.
0: And of course, presumably when these Muslim historians are talking about it, they're using Hijri centuries. To make their categorizations, what, when, if ever does this change occur? To people starting to talk about history vis-à-vis European history and history in terms of early medieval, modern, modern postmodern, and almost doing those comparisons with what was happening in Western Europe at the time, because that becomes the dominant historical narrative. Mm. And and are there any examples of modern? Muslim historians who have categorized it as such, and what have their approaches been?
1: Right. So I, I alluded earlier to uh, uh, Blankenship, and uh, Khalid Yahweh Blankenship is, he's a modern Muslim historian who also, you know, is an academic historian. So he's uh, written a, a, a sort of a, a fairly influential piece, certainly influential for Muslims, about reconceptualizing time and doing away with the kind of Western imperialist and Eurocentric model of, of, of early medieval and modern. I think that's he makes some very good arguments. Uh, you could argue that he's replacing one quite hegemonic or uh, powerful system with another. But at the same time, he, he, he's aware of that. And he says that, well, the value of this is that it serves the purposes of, the, of Muslims who use it. So we know that every periodization serves a purpose. And there's no reason why Muslims should not devise a system that speaks to their own Quranic worldview. Underpinned by monotheism, there's no reason why Muslims should adopt a Eurocentric framing for the past, um, and that's completely fine. That 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 is, I think, an argument which works well if you're. Sorry, there's no reason
0: why they should or they shouldn't.
1: There's no reason why they shouldn't okay. abandon Eurocentric models of periodization and adopt a Muslim uh, vision of history, and a vision okay. of historiography, as he puts it. That's one way of doing it. In terms of how medieval historians thought. They were much less hegemonic in some ways, and that's very interesting to, to, to note because they acknowledged the plurality of calendars. At the same time, their sweep of history, like if you, if you, you, Universal Chronicle, was a very popular way of writing history. And the Universal Chronicle began with creation of the world, went through all the Old Testament prophets, and then depending on which historian and how long the book is and how many volumes they have, they would eventually make their way to their own present time. Um, and in between they would have, you know, your, your Umayyads, your Abbasids, your Saljuks, etc. And so they, they followed a very conventional pattern, but they were also using their chronicle as a way to underpin the idea of a sacred history, a salvation history. So there's more than one thing going on. You have the salvation history, that uh, this is the history of the Islamic world, uh, in which we see, you know, the revelations come through various prophets, etc., including Prophet Muhammad. But then as they get to their own times, they adopt a different kind of perspective on history. They become much more critical. They become much more questioning of people in power. So for example, one Mamluk author i worked uh, a lot on, Ibn al-Furat. When he comes to the history of his own time, he is absolutely, clear about what's moral behaviour amongst the sultans who ruled over Mamluk cities and what isn't moral behaviour. And there you see historiography has a change and undergoes a change from when they're writing about the exemplary period to when they're writing about their own times. Um, So history writing as a vehicle becomes much more uh, a mirror to hold up to society about what's going right and what's going wrong. But for the past, there's something similar going on, but the story is more established. So the outlines of the story, the life of the prophet, etc., is more established. Uh, so it's a complex phenomenon. You know, what, what, what Muslim historians do with, with periodization, uh, it's not straightforward. They are much more um, open-minded about the intersecting timelines of history than, than perhaps we have been in the modern era with our kind of quite Western ways of being educated and thinking about the past.
0: Um, just an interesting point. When you said medieval historians, right now, do you mean medieval in terms of m- the medieval Islamic period, or do you mean medieval in terms of what is traditionally identified in terms of Christian era, or you know mm. uh, the the modern solar calendar, Gregorian calendar? Right,
1: right. Um, so I'm actually meant historians of the medieval period uh, now you could quite rightly say to me well isn't that a Eurocentric terminology and you'd be right, <laughs> it is a Eurocentric terminology. Many would argue that it doesn't work for the Islamic world um, and the idea of there being uh, kind of formative or early Islamic history and then medieval which is post-classical and then you know early modern and then modern, um, that is certainly something that's played in the, into the hands of a, of a, of a Eurocentric ideology. Um, it's something that uh, is quite orientalist and um, as I said before, plays into the uh, knowledge, sort of distorting enterprise of, of, of Western colonial imperialism. Uh, so certainly there is space to critique the idea of um, the medieval. I continue to use it in, many, in in my own teaching because there isn't really a clearly defined alternative. But when we do use that term, we question it. We say, well look, we use this word in inverted commas because we know it's, it's, it's problematic. We know it's Eurocentric and we don't take it for granted that it describes something very distinctive for the, for the Islamic world. Like all of these terms, it's fuzzy um, and it may not be appropriate in every context to use it. But we, I think the self-critical approach to using it makes it perhaps less harmful than taking it at face value. At least I I like to think so, you know.
0: Um, I think now we can get to kind of the, well, I I think I I view this, all of it as kind of a a preamble to the meat, which is how then do you periodize the past 14 centuries and how would you break them down in terms of where would you draw the lines of periodization?
1: Hmm. So I would go with a system of multiple temporalities because the value of any particular periodization will only be it will, it will be good for the particular questions you're asking and it will if you want to ask certain kinds of questions and those questions lend themselves to 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 a, perhaps a quite different periodization than the conventional one so if you ask yourself the question what happened in mamluk egypt during the plague then it doesn't really matter whether it was the Mamluks in power or the Ayyubids in power. What matters is what was the shape of the disease. And we, will, we would, re- this would resonate with us because we we're living in a pandemic. And in some senses, the pandemic transcends the idea of a particular regime being in power or a particular government being in power. D- the disease has a life of its own, right? So it was the same in the medieval period. The um, uh, bubonic plague was a pandemic of its own and it had its own profile and If you wanted to examine that, then you could really look at the history of disease, the history of um, responses to disease, the history of of medical knowledge, the history of how people responded to the crisis that it it generated. And that would have a quite different timeline to the political dynastic model of periodization. So if I were to um, propose alternatives, it wouldn't be one alternative, it would be a series of alternatives and each of those would lend themselves to the particular investigation you're making. Um, and that, I think, would allow us to, uh, A, move away from a very Eurocentric and hegemonic organisation, and B, bring us to a situation where we can ask more nuanced questions about how people experienced life in earlier eras, um, whether as Muslims, people from other communities, whether as people of particular genders, particular professions, particular locations. And that I think is kind of the way forward, really, for understanding the Islamic past. We already have at our disposal classical works on Life of the Prophet, peace be upon them, classical works on the uh, some of the key figures in, in, in Islamic history. That work has been done and, and is there for us to use and to be inspired by and to pass on to future generations. But if you want to ask, questions about people in different layers of society, different strata of society, how they experienced the world, what were their interactions, what were their hopes, fears, concerns, what shaped their lives you know, from on a day-to-day level, then I think these other approaches from the ground upwards, what we call subaltern perspectives, can be very, very helpful. And they don't really fit well with this um, kind Periodization of...
0: Periodization yeah. approach.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think if we... If we were to look at it as a, as a bird's eye of what actually happened in the past 14 centuries. So we've put these contexts of or these caveats of how it may not be the best approach. But now if we come to actually using it. Um, well, if, if for a starter, if we were to divide Islam into this um, kind of classical, then medieval, where would you draw the line or where do most people draw the line? When does classic become medieval in terms of Islamic history?
1: Mm-hmm. So conventionally, when the Abbasids begin to lose grip on their uh, quite large empire and it begins to disintegrate and they give power to other dynastic families, that is seen as the beginning of, of, of what we call a period when mm, the kind of the centralization of, of power under the Abbasids gives way to decentralized structure and successor states come into being and that is often seen as a period when there's a great transition. Now, and that's
0: when, around 11th century Gregorian.
1: So I would say that the Mongol invasion of 1258 was a, an incredibly seen as an incredibly okay. moment. to 1258. That's one disruption. Uh, and then you have the Crusades as perhaps uh, less disruptive, disruptive. Uh, certainly the Crusades did not have the impact that the Mongol conquest had had, even though it's very, it's very, it looms very large in the Western imagination. The Crusades do not have the same profile in, in the Islamic world or in the East generally. Um, they were seen as almost an inconvenience. They did not leave a lasting, lasting legacy the way the Mongol invasions did. So, and the, the Crusades one, were
0: much longer as well, right? So you have
1: mm-hmm.
0: kind of first three Crusades, and then it, it kind of just keeps going and
1: yes, so something successful. like a two hundred plus year period um, yeah. of uh, you know four plus four or more kingdoms were created, Crusader kingdoms. And the, the final one fell around 1291 in Akka and that kind of that era of the crusades was a period when the Muslim world was a there were dynasties fighting with each other but then they were also united against the crusaders in many ways and then uh, the Mamluks kind of helped to put, pay to the, to, the, to the crusaders but where you draw the line and that question you asked you know what where's the turning point and the turning point is is, is is not, there isn't one turning point, there are a series of different, different pivotal moments. And I think we can usually usefully question the idea of there being turning points, because, and Konrad Hirscher talks about this in one of his articles on periodization, that turning points themselves, they tell a story, they also erase other stories. So I think, you know, I, I wouldn't draw the line in, in that kind of way, that you have a cataclysm or a, or, a, or a rupture like the Mongol invasion and then everything changes. No, rather, History is always a series of changes and transformations, and if you stop trying to find those pivotal moments, you might stop kind of being too, too short-sighted about what, what, what's really influential on people's lives. Um, the Mo- when the Mongols came, they were disruptive, they did have a policy of um, disrupting institutions, some would some characterise it as, as, as um, destruction and so on, and you can't deny that the sources talk about this. So it was keenly felt that this was a new kind of enemy that was much more ruthless than what the Muslim armies had been used to being confronted with before. In, in many ways, at the same time, the Mongols acculturated to Islam. They converted to Islam over the, the um, uh, generations. They became, in some ways, more Muslim than the Muslims they re, they, the, 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 the Muslims who had, they had conquered. They made a huge program of of, uh, education, they tried to prove their credentials by sponsoring learning and institutions and so forth. Uh, They repented of the sins of their forefathers, you know, they said that we want to make good on the destruction that happened, um, uh, you know, through our conquest of these areas. Um, And so, if you look, take the longer view, Every disruption is a transformation and transformation never stops happening. So I don't think I would draw a line. I think it would depend on the investigation I was making and then I would chart my, the, the, the progress of history based on that. Um, so I think smaller pivotal moments based on uh, people's experiences, if you can you know, derive that from the sources we have, that's always an issue. Do we have the sources to tell the story from the ground upwards? And that's not always Uh, it's not always possible to do that in a very coherent way but where you can tell the story of of people's experience of of transformation i think that's a more compelling story Uh, the other kinds of story the top downwards history we already have that and we can use it and and take from it as as we wish to Um, and when
0: we when we come to kind of a key events timeline of the 14th centuries we almost always tend to focus it in a top-down sort of approach, right, in terms of, oh, this happened and then there was this invasion, you know, 750 was the overthrow by the Abbasids and then the fall of the Abbasids and the rise of the Seljuk Sultanates and then et cetera, et cetera.
1: There's a good reason for that, which is uh, sources, you know, what sources do we have for the past? We have written sources, which are written by elites. You have to be an elite person to have access to a higher education, to access the places where, where knowledge is transmitted. You also have to have resources to produce and publish your work or to share it with others. Um, and so that's an elite activity. Um, a lot of historians were working for political rulers or you know, many of them were, were independent, they didn't work for political rulers, they were critical of political rulers. But nevertheless, they were in elite spaces, they were in urban spaces. And then you have monumental architecture, which also you know, is, is a, a register of history. Uh, that again is very top-down words. Then you have things like coins, uh, so all of these forms of historiography or narrating history or memorialized in the past, they tend to be top downwards. You do have collections of legal documents or uh, documents produced by religious communities, for example, the Cairo Geniza, which is a, um, a collection of Discarded papers from mainly Jewish communities in medieval Cairo, which tells the story of ordinary people more. But they're literate people; they're people mostly in the cities. You know, business partners, letters to each other, families. There is some material on people in the lower classes, but it's uh, that resource is unusual. There are there's much more of the top downwards history than there is of the of the bottom upwards history. So we do have an issue of sources, source material. Um, Nevertheless, I think the bent now is to look at those sources in more depth and more detail. What does the documentary record record tell us that monumental architecture or chronicles don't tell us? Uh, So we're in an interesting moment of trying to bring these different kinds of sources together to see what they tell us between them.
0: Um, How do you think that will translate or how do you think us as a moment will be represented by history slash historiographers? Or how will history remember this moment? Because Mm. in terms of content, it seems like we're producing a lot more. Right. um in terms of maybe quality or reach of that content or what yeah. becomes the relied upon content for future for the future um and i guess the, the question i'm asking you is how do you as a histo- historiographer mm. think the future will talk about us what yeah. period would we fall under
1: right so i think we're in a quite exciting moment but it's not very new um ever since edward said wrote his book orientalism in 1978 um and, you know, he's drawing on other thinkers who thought along the lines that he did, uh, to some extent, although he's a great innovator in himself. Uh, there's been a questioning of, of Eurocentric narratives, including how they affect Muslims' perceptions of their own past. And for, for I would say it's not simply Muslims, it's also people of the Middle East. So for him, it's it's not always just a religious question. Uh, it's also a question of how communities from the region who are not always united by religion, but were united, united by culture, and united by an experience of being ruled over by colonialists coming from, from Europe. Um, their perceptions of the past were shaped by um, European imperialism and the knowledge enterprise that came with it. Uh, so the work of undoing that knowledge making, you know, in the in the um, in the image of the West, serving Western interests, that's being slowly has has been slowly undone over the generations. I think at this moment in time, what's exciting is that we're seeing communities of scholars, and again, Muslim background, non-Muslim background. They kind of generally tend to come together on this. Um, looking at where the documentary records or so legal documents, Geniza documents, Geniza papers, because they're not all documents, um, coins, architecture, archaeology, historiography in the form of you know biographical dictionaries written by ulama, um, literature, you know, poems, stories, etc., and then history proper, as we, uh, you know, that's a kind of funny way of putting it, but you know, kind of historiography, chronicles, um, biographies, what did they tell us between them? And because there's more interdisciplinary work now, between scholars and and, and, uh, within institutions and across institutions, we're getting more of a broader picture. And I think it's important for Muslims to tap into that where possible, to benefit from these these kind of quite nuanced insights into how people lived, particularly the question of how pluralistic were the societies of the past, where we would rub shoulders with people of other faiths or other denominations within your own faith. Um, Intermarriage was not particularly common, but people's business partnerships, their friendships, their capacity to learn from each other and to live alongside each other in fruitful Interactions is much more widespread than we realize, you know, we hold up Spain as an example of, 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 of a, uh, a place where in the Islamic past there were times when Muslim Jews and Christians did get along Not just got along but they produced great works together and it's become almost a kind of a A kind of metaphor or a symbol, which you know some have criticised as being too oversimplifying, but nevertheless that's held up as an example. But that phenomenon of people living together, finding ways to relate to each other, to um, co-create whether knowledge or business or you know kind of communities is so widespread in the the pre-modern Middle East. And I think that's a story that really needs, that's a a set of stories that we really need in our day and time because we we live in such fractured societies. And Western imperialism has really disrupted those types of interconfessional or interdenominational relationships where people, it was understood that your neighbors might have a different religion to you, prayed in a different kind of institution to you. And that was not a a problem, you know, in any way. Um, I mean, some caliphs were known for their hard line on religious minorities and others were supportive. So from the top downwards, it's a complex picture. From the point of view of how ordinary people lived, it's much less fractured. Um, I'm not saying inter-sectarian violence didn't occur, but sectarianism, as many historians and thinkers now will tell you, is much more modern than it is medieval. Yeah, that's, very, that. I keep in mind. Yeah.
0: that's a very interesting point, one that we can probably explore further. Um, but to bring a conclusion to our discussion on periodization, I think no discussion on periodization is complete without the quoting of the Numan ibn Bashir had hadith on, you know, there's going to, the Prophet ﷺ said, there's going to be four um, broad spe- uh, periods, so there's going to be a period of prophethood for as long mm-hmm. as Allah SWT wants, and then um, then there's going to be khilaf ala and Hajj al which is mm. caliphate on the practice or the paradigms that were set by the Prophet sallallahu And then that's going to finish. And then there's going to be um, uh, kind of sultanates and power and people kind of taking from each other or small small groups. Uh, mm. Sorry, first there's going to be benevolent kingdoms, and then there's going to be kind of destructive kingdoms that are um, mm. that are more tyrannical and take from each other and then we're going to go back to ala which is righteous mm-hmm. caliphate on the paradigms that were set by the prophet mm-hmm. um, and what wh- where do we fit that because i think there have been various contextualizations and it always comes down to yes we're like you know 10 years away from the caliphate because right. look everything has happened already mm-hmm. um but but where where do where does that kind of fit in and and in terms of this there's modern scholars who have done um this sort of periodization
1: um mm-hmm.
0: i think in our offline conversations we mentioned uh, one particular one Maurana modudi uh mm-hmm. from the indian subcontinent who used it as well
1: right. yeah th- these these types of i mean this particular characterization of the past i think it's you know it, it belongs to a particular time and place so the the the, the kinds of people Molyneux Molyneux was speaking to may well have needed a handle on the past which made sense of their own complex and troubling present and from that perspective I have no issue with it you know it has its place it has its role to play and certainly for people at large you do need these handles on the past you need do need a way in to help you make sense of what can otherwise seem a completely undifferentiated you know lists of rulers and so on how do you what's the qualitative criteria by which you ju- judge them um, and so that kind of paradigm that, that that you've just quoted certainly you know will bring some comfort and some help to to, to communities and it would have done at the time i would say that we live in a much more complex information age we receive information from all kinds of sources competing uh types of information which compete actually for our attention um, and our engagement so i would say that we need to keep the, the kind of perspective you described keep it in its context when we need an exemplary view of history where we need a religious perspective the salvation history that i talked about earlier where we need an understanding that this is the dunya and then we have the akhira and what is you know what is the nature of the dunya we world and how are we moving towards the akhirah? That is a perspective which for the religious Muslim, is important, but that will have its own sources that it draws on. And those sources are the Quran itself, the Hadith, the commentaries of the ulama over the centuries. And it's absolutely valuable. I would say that what Muslims also need is an understanding of how that fits in with the kind of social history I've talked about. And It's not an either or, it's not a zero-sum game. If you want your history to be religious in flavor, um, if you want the Quranic monotheism to be the center of the religious historical paradigm, the way that Blankenship suggests it can and should be, and that's a valuable way of doing it, I have no argument with that, that's absolutely fine. At the same time, there's so much rich scholarship out there which fleshes out how people lived and I think if those stories interest you, then we now have many more resources we can draw on. And I would say that there's no reason why we should limit ourselves to one way of doing history or another. Uh, We have, we are gifted with complex minds, uh, very lively curiosity. And when we think about ourselves as, you know, I'm I'm assuming that your listeners are Western Muslims for the most part, Anglican Muslims. Um, We don't want to be in a situation where we receive all of our understanding of the Islamic past via completely secular models. So Muslims need to engage with historiography in all its forms and formats. And I think therein lies the way forward, really.
0: I think that's a, that's a very conclusive message to kind of close on, is that Muslims need to engage with history more um, mm-hmm. through all of its sources, through all the uh, mechanisms that we have. Um, I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time out. I think that was very interesting and put everything in kind of a context. I think in my head, I'm kind of trying to develop a timeline. But as I said, everything that comes into that timeline of what yeah. happened in Islamic history, it tends to focus on that top-down approach. And mm-hmm. it's kind of changing that mindset to think a little bit more laterally and more of you know a cloud of how did, how did things actually phase? It wasn't black and white. It was... Um, a slow phasing of different environmental factors and technologies and diseases, etc. So really appreciate your time. And I hope that our listeners um, will find this enriching as well. um, And they can reach out to us for further conversations. Um, We hope to hope to, of course, have you back um, for further conversations um, and to shed light on some other topics. Um, So Thank you very much for that. Um, and I will sign off here on behalf of the Islam Through the Ages podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you very much.